I realized at a young age that we don't live in a fantasy world. We live in the real world, a broken world, and it requires faith. Every day, we pass by hundreds of people. Every day, we struggle with who we are. We live in a generation that displays a fantasy life where everything looks perfect. We live in a generation that doesn't see hurting people, even when they're all around us. A lot of us believe the lie that if you live for yourself, you'll be happy. And a lot of us believe the lie that when you are broken, you are not loved. But here's where faith comes in. You are loved by someone who made you in his image. And when you open your eyes and see the people around you, Jesus Christ will use you to change lives. Because the church is not a fantasy place for perfect people. No, each one of us are the church. So in a broken world, I don't choose false truths, and I don't choose fantasy Christianity. I choose faith. What do you choose? Now, tonight we pick up with part two of the sermon that we began last week. Last week we did No More Playing Church, and uh, we looked at Matthew chapter 16, and we spoke a lot about identity. We talked a lot about how, and we're going to read it here in a minute, when Peter comes face to face with Jesus, and the whole disciples do, really. Uh, Jesus asked them, who do the people say I am? And if you'll remember from last week, uh, Peyton, they rattled off a lot of things that weren't true. They said John the Baptist, Jeremiah, Elijah. And then he looks at Peter, the disciples, and he says, who do you say that I am? In which Peter responds, you are the son of the living God. Now, I told you we were doing part two. Last week was on identity. Tonight, we move into authority. We're going to look at the rest of these verses and talk about the church. And so the title is, if you'll write taking notes, I'd love for you to write this down. No more playing church part two. You could guess it, it's not a surprise. But no more playing church part two. And in fact, Skylar really set this up well, speaking of the church. And when I say the word church, I want to ask you what comes into your mind tonight. <laughs> when you think about church, what comes into your mind? Because for me, I have a picture that will come up. I always think, when I hear church, I think of the old pews. You know what I'm talking about? You ever seen those? The old wooden, here they are right here, the old wooden pews that creak every time you sit down on them, and uh, you're shoulder to shoulder with people, no individual chairs. I think about those stained glass windows in churches. You know, think about some of the things you have experienced with church. There's nothing wrong with pews. You know, I'm not going to debunk these tonight and go hard on these or anything. But what comes to your mind when you think about church? Because for a lot of us, what we have heard or experienced when it comes to church, especially here in the South, may not necessarily be true. So tonight I want to answer the question, what is the church? Because you see signs everywhere you go. In fact, you see signs here at The View. You see signs that say you belong here. And we've promoted that at The View. You see that at Bellevue. You see signs at churches that say welcome home. You see all these slogans and these sayings that, uh, about what the church is about. Well, are those really uh, true? Whenever I see a welcome home sign, even the banners outside when I'm walking up on Monday morning, it says welcome home, view family. I look at those banners and I say, I wonder if that's true. I wonder if when people walk into the view, do they experience family? Do they experience the presence of God? When people go to church, do they experience a place that welcomes in broken, hurting sinners? Or do they believe that it's a, a Christian yacht club for the perfect? A few years ago, back in 2018, I had a phase in my life. And uh, I go through phases. If you know me, you know that I go through ticks. There was a time I was eating Hueys about five times a week. And I love Hueys. 
There's some people that were hating on Huey's. In fact, Skylar, I'm going to put her on blast. Skylar went to Huey's and did not think it was good. Can you believe that? Isn't that amazing? I'm like, y'all don't know what's good out there at Liberty because Huey's is fantastic. Some laughs, not an amen in a bunch, though. Amen? Still waiting. Thank you. Thank you. Still waiting. Amen. Well, I had this phase a couple years ago in 2018. We can loosen up in here, right? We can loosen up. Amen. I had this phase, and it cost me some money because I started collecting things. Yes. Collecting is a dangerous habit. Or what am I looking for? Hobby. Right? If you want to pick up a hobby, don't collect unless it's free. You want to collect rocks, go outside and collect rocks. That's fine. Don't, don't collect. All right? At this phase growing up, I would collect DVDs. Now they're all useless. You can't even play them. Nobody has a DVD player anywhere. You know? And I got on this phase, and I bought, <laughs> I became a Funko pop toy collector. Hey. Amen? And y'all, who got a pop toy in here? Raise your hand. Amen? Yeah, some, some me and salsa. Amen. Yeah, me and salsa. Well, if you don't know what pop toys are, I brought one, <laughs> just in case. Uh, this is <laughs> a Black Panther. It's like a little bobblehead, you know, a little Black Panther pop toy. Right? There you go. Little Black Panther pop toy. And you can collect these. They have like Marvel. They have, I'm moving around. I'm so sorry. The camera guy's like, you know. And uh, they have these. You can collect them. And uh, here's what happened. I want to tell you the story. So also, I'm going to throw this to you. So hold on to that. Actually, throw it back for me. I was hoping I didn't drop it. I was so nervous. <laughs> like, y'all see me drop that. It's going to be so embarrassing. I went through a phase with these where I, this is what happened. I bought five of them, okay, off Amazon. It's about 40 bucks, give or take, <laughs> you know. My wife's in the room, so we're going to say 40, you know. <laughs> we're going to say 40. Some of y'all know the price. Some of y'all are like, those were not $40. <laughs> Bruce is here. Bruce is like, Daniel did not spend 40 on five of them. In fact, I can tell you how much he spent. <laughs> it's about 50. And uh, I bought five. Here's what happened. In 2018, everybody, including Trey, he bought me some. Everybody found out that I liked them. And once they found out that I liked them, it was like the perfect gift to get Daniel. So, like, I was graduating college and, like, getting married, and I opened boxes, and it'd be pop toys. Like, congrats on your marriage. Put this on the shelf next to your signed Steve Gaines Bible, you know. Like, put this right there, and you'll, you'll love it, you know. And so people started buying these for me like crazy. And uh, I'm done with this. Thanks, Austin. And uh, what happened is uh, me and Adam French, the guy that I used to work with here at The View, went to GameStop one day, and this is when we were really collecting. I mean, we were hardcore, like magnifying glass, inspecting the label, looking for rare ones. Like, this was an issue, okay? <laughs> and uh, we go inside. And, well, we get to the GameStop's door, and there's a sign on the door. I want you to imagine this, right? And I don't want to put GameStop on blast. If you work at GameStop, I'm so sorry. I love GameStop. I like GameStop. They're okay. And there's a sign on the door. Me and Adam see this. It says, buy two, get two free. Pop toys. And so, you know, I grab eight, you know, <laughs> naturally. You know, I grab eight, maybe 12. And I grab these boxes. And I'm like, man, we're getting a deal. Like, this is awesome. Buy two, get two free. And me and Adam, we go up there and, uh, you know, we set them on the counter, you know, like box after box after box is stacking up here. The GameStop workers looking at me like I have a drug problem, you know, like, you guys got any Captain Americas in the back, you know? <laughs> And, uh, you know, he's looking at me like, I got an issue, man. I got all these pop toys, you know. And I'm like, come on, man. I know you got Iron Man. <laughs> and, uh, you know, oh, man. No joke. He looks at me. And he says in this moment, he looks at me. He says, uh, sir, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm like, why? <laughs> he's like, we're not actually doing the buy two, get two free. <laughs> and I'm like crushed, <laughs> you know. 
Like, this is at the point, this is the end of my collection habit. So Hannah has been very strict on Daniel. You cannot spend all our money on pop toys, you know. So we're at that point. And so I'm like, you know, why? And here's what happens. Seriously, there's a point to all this. I, I point to the door. I say, the sign on the door said, buy two, get two free. But he said, oh, I'm so sorry. We're not actually doing that once I got inside, once I got to the counter. And I want to make a point to you. I've never forgotten this story. It's so silly. It's so goofy. But I've never forgotten it. And I've told our leaders this before. Here's why. The promotion on the outside, the deal, the whole advertisement, once you got inside, you realized that the promotion did not match reality inside. So I left the pop toys, and I didn't come back. Here's the point I want to make to you. Everywhere you go, when you see churches, you see signs, you see promos. You see these slogans, you belong here. Welcome home, view family. Let's put us on blast. Welcome home, view family. Every time I see those banners, this is what I wonder. Does the promotion on the outside match reality when you get inside? Sheesh, can you imagine? Because for me, when I got up to the counter, I said, man, this whole buy two, get two free is not real, so I'm going to leave all of it. And you know what? What I want to make a point to you tonight is when the church promotes something on the outside, but then openly does not live it out on the inside. Once people get in, they're going to get to the counter and say, you know what, this ain't for me, and walk away. So tonight as we talk about the church, how believers live their lives, especially inside the church walls, not just outside the walls, but inside the walls, matters. You know why? Because people are watching. And when you walk up on a Monday night and see Welcome Home View family, you expect to experience some sort of supernatural expression of God in this room. His presence would be here. And how his presence is here, a big way, is how we treat each other. How I love Ibuka with the love of Christ. Do we really do that inside the view? That's a question I want to ask tonight. Now, as we talk about the church, I want you to understand, Skylar talked about this very well when I was in the ninth grade. I've told this story before. This is very familiar to you. But I went into the ninth grade, a uh, little high school worship. Saw the people on stage worshiping. You remember this? Saw them worshiping. Saw them leading. My peers, 10th and 11th graders, leading in worship. Wasn't here at Bellevue. This was not here at Bellevue. Leading in worship. And I was like, okay, this is kind of cool. And then once they walked off the stage, once the service had ended, I was around those people and I experienced firsthand hypocrisy. You ever experienced hypocrisy before? You have because you and I are hypocrites too. <laughs> we all are. God bless you. Okay. We're going to have to get some water. <laughs> yeah. I'm just kidding. I'm putting you on blast. I shouldn't do that. Someone's like, oh, my gosh, is he sick? <laughs> I saw that firsthand. I said, you know what? I don't want any part of this high school ministry worship. I said, they're on stage leading worship, and then with the same mouth that they led those people in worship, they immediately walked off the stage and started gossiping about those same people. Isn't that crazy? And so how we operate, how we choose to live our lives inside the church walls and outside the church walls matters. And for every believer in the room, we hold that responsibility and so that's what we're going to talk about tonight. And so let's look at Matthew chapter 16. <clears throat> let's look at what the Lord says uh, here, what Jesus is going to say about his church. <clears throat> starting, I'm going to read the verses from last week, Miss BJ, to make sure that we're all on the same page. And so starting in verse 13, here's last week. <clears throat> when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? This is Matthew 16, verse 13. Starting in verse 14, they replied, some say John the Baptist, eh. others, Elijah, wrong. Still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Remember last week we talked about how they were recognizing Jesus' anointing. All these figures that the world was saying he was had an anointing. They just stripped away the fact that he is God. 
And so a lot of us want to say Jesus is a great friend, but we don't want to say that he is God because that makes him Lord of our lives. And so they had recognized his anointing, but they took away his identity as God. And then look, but you, Jesus asked them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered with an emphatic you in the Greek, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus responded, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. Here's our verses for tonight. And I also say to you that you are Peter. Underline that in your Bibles, if you will, if you underline in your Bibles. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. We're going to talk about that word rock right there. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Then he gave the disciple orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. Let's pray tonight. Heavenly Father, God, we praise you for who you are first and foremost. We praise you for the name of Jesus Christ. God, we praise you for each baptism that we got to be a part of tonight. Lord, we know that y'all were rejoicing in heaven, and we rejoice with you. We lift our voices and shout in celebration of life change, God. Make us a ministry that celebrates life change. Father, tonight we praise you for Skylar's testimony and for bringing her here to Memphis. God, we ask that your word would not return void. Father, I ask that, God, who cares what I have to say, that I would get out of the way, that you would speak every word through me as we dissect your word. Father, we pray and ask for anyone in this room who's here for the first time that they would experience first your presence, but also the supernatural love of Christ from the people in this room. And then, Father, we pray for anyone in here who doesn't know you, that they would repent of their sins and believe in Jesus as their Savior. God, we pray for anyone in here who needs to be baptized, that they would go forward with it. God, we pray right now that you would speak. Father, we're talking about no more playing church. And Lord, we don't want to be here tonight and just play worship. We want to worship you in, our, in spirit and in truth. Father, we want to hear from you tonight. Father, I pray you would speak every word, convict and encourage us where both need to be had. Lord, we love you so much. Bind the enemy in the name of Jesus, by the blood of Jesus, by the word of God and the spirit of God from this place. I pray that you would bind all distractions and discouragement in this room tonight. Lord, we love you. If that's your prayer tonight, would you say amen? Amen. Aren't you so glad we get to meet and worship over the summer? Isn't this incredible? Don't forget a year ago we were locked in the house and we couldn't gather. And now we get to gather and worship together. Praise God for that. Number one, if you're taking notes tonight, I want you to write this down. We're going to look specifically at verse 18. Number one, the purpose of the church. Number one tonight, the purpose of the church. And let's talk about this for a few minutes. I got two points tonight, very straightforward. Uh, from the text, the purpose of the church. Now, Jesus never wasted a word. I have wasted many words in my life uh, by being a big talker, by talking about pop toys. I've wasted some words. I've done, I've acted foolishly with my words before, and I'm not, I know I'm not the only one in here, but I want you to think about this. Every word Jesus uttered was never wasted. Isn't that amazing? Jesus never sinned. Remember last week, Peter, when he looked at Jesus, could not think of one sin that Jesus had committed. Isn't that amazing? Not one sin. Jesus never wasted a word. And after Peter, I don't want you to miss this. We're tying last week to this week. After Peter says who Jesus is, did you notice that Jesus responds with who Peter is? 
Isn't that cool? Peter says, you are the son of the living God. And then Jesus says, and I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock. So before we even get into the church, let me make a point to you tonight, college students, that just as Peter sees Jesus for who Jesus is, Jesus sees Peter for who Peter is. I wrote this down in my notes. We don't always see Jesus accurately, but Jesus always sees us accurately. And he sees you accurately. There is no fooling Jesus. He sees you for exactly who you are, exactly where you are. In fact, he knows where your heart is. One of the first verses I memorized in Scripture, it's amazing. David is speaking to Solomon. Write this down if you're willing. It's 1 Chronicles 28.9. David says to his son, as for you, Solomon, my son, look at this. Know the God of your father and serve him wholeheartedly and with a willing mind. That's a great question for all of us who serve tonight. Do we serve the Lord with a whole heart or with a half heart? (laughs) Because we all know what it's like to have one foot in the pool and one foot on the outside. You know, that's the amazing thing about baptism. You can't get half baptized. (laughs) You can't just put one foot in that trough. You got to go all the way down and all the way up because it's showing that you're all in to follow Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, do you serve the Lord with a whole heart or a half heart? I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me keep going. And with a willing mind. For the Lord searches every heart and understands the intention of every thought. Isn't that amazing but also a little bit humbling? Isn't that a little sobering? Isn't that a little numbing to think about? Because our thoughts, if we printed off every thought we had and put it up on this board for everyone to see, every single one of us, including me, would be terrorized, wouldn't we? We'd be terrorized. Some of us tonight, the the thoughts that we've allowed ourselves to think today, if they were put up on this screen, we'd be having a panic attack and running for the door, and yet we really don't care that Jesus knows every thought. We just let it keep going in our mind. But the Lord searches every heart and understands the intention of every thought. Notice, Jesus, the Lord does not just search the thoughts, but the intentions of your thoughts. Isn't that amazing? Deep in your core, who you are, your being, the Lord searches it. And then David says, if you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you abandon him, he will reject you forever. Can I tell you what playing church looks like? It's this. When you're not walking with the Lord, but you come in here and try to convince everybody else you are to the point that as long as you convince them you're walking with the Lord, you're good, that's playing church. And I can't tell you how many times I've done that in my life and how many times I've watched college students spend four years of their lives trying to convince others they're walking with Jesus instead of simply walking with Jesus. (laughs) That's what playing church is like. And I want to tell you, you got best friends, you got family, you love them, but you know how to fool them too. And I don't know who this is for tonight, but... As much as I love Dakota and he's my accountability partner, if I want to, I can fool him. Ben Taylor is here in the back, one of our life group teachers who serves in this ministry. He holds me accountable on many things. I can fool Ben if I want to. You can fool your family. You can fool your friends if you really want to. You know how to make it look like you're religious, to make it look like you've got it figured out, to make it look like you're walking with Jesus daily and in the word and in prayer. You know how to fool people. Can I tell you something? Just because you get away with fooling people does not mean you're fooling the Lord. You cannot fool the Lord. And you know what? Praise God for that. (laughs) Because the Lord sees you exactly where you are and in the middle of that sin that you want to break through so badly, and he still chooses to love you and forgive you when you repent. Isn't that amazing? There are people in your life who would stop being there for you if you didn't pay them back $50 that you owed them. (laughs) Do you realize that there are people in your life who would betray you over something as simple as a job or interview or money? And God knows every single sin you've ever committed and still chooses to forgive us when we repent. Do you see the grace that's on display? (laughs) Don't ever idolize a person in your life when God has 
forgiven you and loved you every single time you repent. It's a love that we really cannot fathom tonight, college students. In fact, Peter did not always see Jesus accurately. Yes, he's having an incredible moment right now. But do you remember when Peter denied Jesus three times? I do. See, Peter didn't always see Jesus as someone worth suffering for. And yet, Jesus always saw Peter as someone worth suffering for. As you go through college and you're called to stand up for your faith, you're going to be persecuted, and that's going to be hard. I'm going to be persecuted, and that's going to be hard. But you know what? Jesus is worth persecution. I would rather be persecuted for Christ than be popular with the world. Do you? I want to be there. Peter denied Jesus three times. He admits who he is here, but he denied him three times. You know what? One of the things I wrote down, I think a lot of us struggle with this. A lot of us see Jesus as worthy of our worship when we're here on a Monday night and everything's going good. But when it's time to wake up early in the morning and get in the word and nobody's around, is he worthy of your worship then? In fact, if you want to know whether or not you are maturing as a believer, do not miss this tonight. One of the things I wrote down is if you want to know whether or not you're maturing as a believer, evaluate this. Evaluate how you worship God when everything is going good versus how you worship God when everything is going bad. What are the differences? Because when I coached basketball, we had a ton of players who were all in, both feet, ready to go for the team when things were going good for them. And yet the minute that we began running ladders, they were ready to quit. (laughs) The minute their body got pushed to a point where they were about to throw up, they were ready to quit and jump off the team. And you know what? In the church, there is a softness to many believers, including me. There is a softness that we're willing to follow Jesus as long as everything is going good. But we're ready to quit and panic and do things our own way as soon as things get a little tough. Does your faith shine in the mountaintops the same way it does in the valleys? We cannot base our worship of God on how life is going That's a fantasy. (laughs) A maturing believer, and this will be on the screen. I'd love for you to write this down. A maturing believer does not let their circumstances rule over their worship of God. They let their worship of God rule over their circumstances. And this is so pivotal. We're going to keep this on the screen for a minute. If you really want and desire to know where you are tonight, some of us in here just don't want to evaluate where we are with God. We're good. We just want to keep treading water and keep going to the path we're down. But if you really want to know If you're growing as a believer, does your circumstances dictate your worship of God? Does how things are going dictate your worship of God? Or do you allow your worship of God to dictate and rule over your circumstances? Are you willing to worship God when others around you are not worshiping God? Are you willing to carry your Bible to class this fall when nobody else has a Bible? Oof. (laughs) Or would you be willing to read your Bible in the... You see at University of Memphis or the cafe at CBU when nobody else is reading their Bible. What about when you get in science class and the talk about evolution comes up and you know the truth about creation and you're called on to voice your opinion? Is, is Jesus worthy of your worship then? Or is he only worthy of your worship inside the church house? I don't know. I just want us to ask questions tonight. Now, what's fascinating about this text is Jesus is using a play on words here. Trey, this is very fascinating what he's doing here. Peter's name, and I'm going to put some of this on the screen. In fact, here it is, Petros versus Petra. Peter's name in the Greek is Petros, which means stone. And I want you to write this down. This is very important as you study this text. Peter's name in Greek is Petros, which means stone. 
What Jesus is doing here is so amazing, how he's using a play on words here. Avery, it really is cool how he's doing this. But when Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church, he uses the Greek word Petra. Do you see the difference? Now, Petra was a collection of rocks knitted together to form a larger slab. And so I want you to think what Jesus is doing here, because it's very fascinating. In fact, I have a picture, and I know you're still taking notes. You can take a screenshot of this if you need to, whatever you need to do. But here you see the difference between kind of pebbles and little stones that are all individualized. And then right here you see a larger slab that's on the bottom there. Jesus is painting this picture here of who he is building his church on. And I want to make a statement to you. It is not just on Peter, one stone. Instead, what Jesus is saying is Jesus is saying that he is building his church on a collection of rocks. Here's what's amazing, Connor. Who are those collection of rocks? One of the commentaries I was studying said this. This will be on the screen. You can take a screenshot if you want. It says, it is reasonable to understand Jesus' statement to me that Peter was one rock, watch this, among a rock quarry, the disciples. In fact, it was upon this quarry of disciples and their understanding of Peter's confession that Jesus would build his church. Peter would be the initial spokesman among those who would reveal the truth about Jesus' identity, the heart of the revealed gospel. In fact, when you take this idea of what Jesus is saying here, it really brings together the visual of the church and how we're supposed to operate as believers. Paul even affirms this in his teaching. You want to talk cross-references? Watch this. Paul affirms this too, Grace, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 to 22. Paul says, so then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. Look at verse 20. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. Don't get it twisted. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. This is amazing. And I don't want you to miss this tonight because this is very important. Jesus built his church, Haley, on a collection of rocks a.k.a., watch this, the collection of believers. And when those rocks come together, they make up a larger slab. I'm going to apply this in a way that you might miss the significance of this, but I really pray you don't. In order to have a larger slab of stone, individual rocks have to be completely united together. Think about that. You cannot build on a slab until the individual rocks have come together. I want to make a statement to you tonight. The church will not operate with the power it's supposed to until the individual rocks, a.k.a. the believers, lay aside their divisions and unite in Christ. Think about what Jesus is teaching. Jesus Christ built his church on the disciples and the apostles, and the reason the entire world changed is because they had one mission and one calling. How can the church change the world today when we have believers off chasing their own missions everywhere? I want to say to you tonight that if all you have is separated pebbles, they may look cute, but they're not holding anything up. 
And I want to tell you tonight, as long as we have separated, divided, ununited believers, we may look cute, but we aren't really holding anything up that has value. I want to say to you tonight, do you know how strong a slab is? Like, when we put that picture back on the screen, do you know how strong a slab of concrete is right here versus those individual pebbles? Do you know the difference in strength? And can I tell you the difference in strength between believers when they're all on their own and isolated and chasing their own missions and their own passions apart from Christ versus when a group of believers come together and unite as one? Do you know the difference in the strength in those two things? One of them you pick up and toss and throw around and it looks cute. The other you build on. Isn't that amazing? And what we have done in America is we have divided ourselves as believers over race. Uh Uh-oh. Uh-oh. What we've done is, since we're all individual rocks created by the same God in the image of Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, what we have done is said, I'm going to look at my black brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm going to look at my white brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm going to look at my Hispanic brothers and sisters in Christ, whoever you want to say. And we have chosen to divide ourselves based on the complexion of our skin. Do you know how silly that looks when believers do that? (laughs) When we claim to all be made in the image of the same God? What we have chosen to do is we have chosen to divide ourselves based on gossip. We have chosen to say, hey, even though believers, Michelle, are called to be one and united together, if I don't like a fellow believer, I'm just going to talk bad about them any chance I get. (laughs) Who cares about being built together as the church, as a body of believers? If I don't like somebody, I'm just going to tell them about it, and I'm going to tell everybody else about it too. We hold grudges. We hold unforgiveness in our hearts. We choose to slander others knowing that that's not the calling that God has placed in our lives. Really, this is church. This is it. We as believers have chosen to, instead of, in today's world, unite together for the cause of Christ, we have chosen to separate ourselves every chance we get. I want to ask you something. Who in your life do you have division with tonight? Why? Why? Is it going to matter in eternity? Good. Talk about it with them. We have issues with other believers, and we're so scared to go and just address the issue, but we have no problem talking about the issue with everybody else. Is there anybody? You say, Daniel, this is harsh. Yeah, it is. This is the gospel. Is there anybody in your life you are divided with? (laughs) Why not be the one to go to them and reconcile for the cause of Christ? Why not you? Are you going to continue to wait for them? You'll be waiting a long time. You could be waiting a very, very long time. I need to keep going. I want to tell you tonight, when we unite for Christ's cause, we will see revival that cannot be stopped. And if this room of believers chose to sell out and to say, I am laying aside any division I have and be all in for the cause of Christ, we would see revival. In fact, 1 Corinthians 1.10, Paul says, Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. In fact, what happens when, when this occurs is Acts chapter 4, verses 31 to 32. It says, When they had prayed, which every revival, every ounce of unity is going to come from prayer. It's going to come not from willpower, but the Spirit's power. It says, when they had prayed, the place where they assembled was shaken. How many of you would love for God to shake this place tonight? Amen? (laughs) I want God to shake this place. I love the fellowship hall. It's a beautiful structure, but if God messed it up a little bit, praise God. (laughs) 
And there might be some people at Bellevue that don't like me saying that, but I want God to shake this building. I want God to shake my heart. I want God to shake your heart a little bit. I want God to open up the heavens and see us praying so diligently for unity that he sends his spirit down and says, if they really want it, I'll make it happen. Can you imagine? What would happen? Here it is. Let's keep going. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God boldly. Now the entire group of those who believed were of of one heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. Look at this. One heart and one mind. Who searches your heart and your mind? The Lord. Can you imagine when the Lord comes down tonight, if he searched your heart, and your mind, and my heart, and my mind, and what he was to find was a bunch of broken sinners who were repenting over their sins and urging, yearning for unity with other believers that they were willing to set aside all evil thoughts, willing to set aside all jealousy in their heart, willing and trying to set it all aside. Can you imagine when God opens up the heavens, looks down on a Monday night, sees your heart and your mind trying to do that? You know what will happen? He will shake this place and he'll shake the city of Memphis. He'll shake the city of Memphis. He changed the world with 12. What could he do with well over 300? (laughs) Revival. Will you not revive us again, God? Why not Memphis? Why not the view? Why not us, Julia? Why not us? If there's anybody in this room tonight that you have division with that is causing you to not be united with your fellow believers, Why not go to them tonight? Tonight. I don't know what that looks like for you. You do. Say, hey, I messed up. You messed up. We messed up. Let's pray. Let's fix it. Let's address it. Let's stop tiptoeing around it. Let's fix it and then reconcile. You know what? Not only will they have a weight lifted off of them, you'll have a weight lifted off of you because you're not really hurting them. You're hurting yourself. Hmm. On vacations, me and my sister would always go to the beach every year. Gulf Shores, Panama City Beach, Destin. We'd drive down there with my family. It's an eight, nine-hour drive. You always got to get McDonald's on a car trip. Amen. You get McDonald's on a car trip? Y'all like cookout. Cookout is overrated. <laughs> okay? Let me say that from here. Cookout is overrated. You get what you pay for. I see some people like, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there's some people in here who have not said a word tonight or moved, but when I say cookout was overrated, they're like, "Mm, yeah. Uh, I don't know about that unity stuff, but I'm with you on cookout, okay? I don't know about forgiveness, but I'm with you on cookout. I don't know what you're talking about with all these rocks and slabs, but I'm with you on that, you know? (laughs) Me and my sister, every year we go to the beach. We stay in a condo. You got to stay in a condo. And we would come up on the elevators. Now, we were maybe 10 and 5 and when you came up to the elevator, you know there's always an elevator button. <laughs> and I cannot tell you. I'm not exaggerating. She's probably watching tonight. My dad is. My mom is. World War III would start in our family over who pushed the elevator button. You ever been there? <laughs> Man, I'm telling you. I love you, Stephanie, my sister. I love you. But I'm not going to let you push this elevator button. <laughs> World War III. You'll be fighting. Mash that button. My dad would look at us. He'd say, you know how silly you look? He would say this to us. He'd say, you know how petty that is to fight over who's going to push the elevator button? Something so small when you're both headed to the same place. (laughs) I've thought many times when I see believers arguing over petty stuff, I want to tell them, man, do you know how petty it looks for you to fight over this world when you're both heading to the same place? (laughs) You know how petty it looks to the world? 
It, I want you to imagine this. When you and another believer get into some petty argument that's worldly and doesn't have anything to do with actual eternity, what you look like is me and my sister fighting over the elevator button. <laughs> Immature. Imagine how we look to the world. <laughs> Lay it aside. What's amazing is when me and my sister stopped caring who pushed the elevator button, all of a sudden we start pushing each other to do it. I'm like, Stephanie, won't you push it this time? <laughs> you know, you start like loving the other person once you let it go. You realize like that button really doesn't matter. Stephanie, here, you push it. Seriously, I want you to. And what's amazing is some of these little disputes we get in with other believers, if you would take a step back and look at eternity, you'd look back at that dispute and say, wow, that was so silly. You pushed the elevator button. <laughs> Whatever it is for you, I don't know what it is. If you're fighting with somebody over elevator button tonight, we need to have a talk because you're in college. <laughs> That's an issue, okay? <laughs> All right, salsa. <laughs> if you and Kayla were fighting over the elevator button, we need to have a talk. We have some counselors for you. Wait aside, I need to keep going. That is an amazing picture of Jesus paints of the church. Individual rocks coming together to make up a larger slab built on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ himself. That's the church. But in order to have a slab... Rocks have to be united fully or it'll come apart. And for us at The View and at the church as a whole, believers have to be united in order to see the movement we want God to do. We have to unite through the power of the Spirit, not willpower. Let me move on tonight. Look with me at verse 19. And I wish, man, I wish I could do a part three on this, but I can't because I'm not going to have time to get into the binding and loosing. I wish that I did. I might do a part three at some point on this, but, you know, I'm going to talk about the keys of the kingdom of heaven for a minute. Look with me at verse 19. Jesus then says, and in fact, I'll go back to 18. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. We're going to talk about that. And then verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. The last thing is, number two, the authority of believers. So we got two things tonight <clears throat> as you're taking notes. Number one, the purpose of the church what is the purpose of the church? We could spend a long time talking about it. In the end, it's for believers to be united, to be the light of the world that brings about God's glory. That is the purpose of the church. Unity, love, prayer, to be one. The picture of pebbles coming together to make up a larger slab. The purpose of the church. But two, there's a big point here, Victoria, to make about the, the authority of believers. Now, the Greek word for church is ekklesia, which means gathering. And it comes from a verb, which means to literally call out from. Imagine this, call out from. And uh, I just want to make a point to you. Isn't it funny that the church, that believers are called to stand out, and yet, Grayson, we work so hard to fit in with the world, don't we? We, fit, we work so hard. Even as a college pastor, I have these Jordans on that the middle school team gave me. I remember when I took over as college pastor, I felt like, man, I've got to have Jordans if I'm going to go up there and preach. What in the world? <laughs> Do you know how shallow that is? If I walked up here in some Asics, I'm going to preach the word of God. And I don't have anything against ASICs. But what shoe? It sounds like I really hate ASICs. I love ASICs. I don't have any. It does not matter the clothes that we wear. It does not matter the brand that we have on us. That, what does that matter in eternity? All these preconceived things to try to fit in with the culture. And they're not even bad things. But Tony Evans said, and I love this, and I'm going to put this on the screen. When you talk about the church, he says this. The church is like an embassy. And some of you have heard this before. The U.S. has embassies throughout the world, and people working in an embassy are to live out the values and the laws of the U.S. as they represent their homeland in a foreign country. Each embassy, look at this, this play on words, is a little bit of America a long way from home. 
Similarly, the church of the Lord Jesus is to adopt the agenda of its heavenly king and enact it on earth. I love this final statement. Christ's church is a little bit of heaven a long way from home. Don't you love that? I can't illustrate that better. An embassy that rules in a foreign land. So think about the authority believers have at the church, that we are called to implement heaven's rule right here on earth. In fact, that's what binding and loosing is. Binding is restraining. Loosing is literally loosing. That means we have the authority to pray and call out for God to bind the enemy, to bind spirits of discouragement, to bind spirits of fear, and to loosen the fruits of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, to loosen those in our lives, that we have the keys to the kingdom of heaven. I want you to understand, if you are a follower of Jesus, you have been given authority. Jesus said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. We hold heavenly access right here on this earth. That heaven, and it's so contradictory because you don't hear this taught, heaven is not just a place we reach when we die. It's a way of life here on this earth. It's what we can experience through the presence of God right here on this earth. That each believer, Cheyenne, who has the spirit of God living in them, can literally live out heaven on earth. There's a way that I illustrate this. Trey will remember this a couple years ago at The View. Me and my wife went to Miami, and uh, I loved going to Miami. I don't know if you've ever been to Miami. We went down there for a week, and um, this is a trip where I got sunburned a week before really, really bad. You ever had bad sunburn, Frank? You ever had bad sunburn before? I was so bad, I cannot exaggerate it. I had blisters on my shoulders. You ever had that before? Blisters. And it was hard because I would try to go to sleep, and the pillowcases would, like, rub on the blisters, and so I couldn't sleep. And so when we went to Miami, I was super afraid of my skin. So I was laying on the beach, yes, but I had lathered up in the sunscreen Dakota uses, 150. You know, I had it all on me, and he knows that. He's open about it. He's not ashamed of it. But I was scared. And uh, we loved Miami. The beaches there are very different than Destin or Panama City. In Panama City and Destin, the beaches are shorter and more hilly. In Miami, what I loved about the beaches is they're very long beaches. And if you've been there, you know. And they're very flat. And so cars often drive on the beaches all the time. There's a lot of beach in Miami. And cruise ships would come in. And it was an amazing vacation, amazing city. We had to pray in the city and everything. And it was an amazing beach. One of the things I noticed in Miami were the lifeguard towers. You remember this, Trey? The lifeguard towers. Here's a picture of one of them. What I loved is on Miami's beach, there's lifeguard towers. You don't see these in Destin or Panama City. But these are everywhere in Miami. All along the coast. We stayed in South Beach. We went to American Airlines Arena where the heat play. Um, and this, these uh, lifeguard towers are all throughout the beach. And the riptides can get pretty bad, I imagine. You're right there on the Atlantic Ocean. And so they have to have these everywhere. And all week long, I laid on the beach and I watched the lifeguards. Stephen, I was amazed at these lifeguards. <laughs> I was shocked at these lifeguards. They are the real deal. You ever seen them before? They did not play. The entire time they're at the beach, they're zoned in. Madeline, they're watching people getting too far out. If people get too far out, whoo, you know, they blow that whistle. And then you see people who've been drinking, they get a little mad. Like, why the lifeguard calling me back in? Like, it's for your own good, dude. You're about to drown. <laughs> right? You can't even walk out there. You're stumbling around. Lifeguard's trying to save you, you know. <laughs> and these lifeguards would, would be out on that beach. And you can always spot them. You know how? They got red and white. Can't miss them. And usually the guys are pretty buff, you know. <laughs> usually, not all the time. Red and white, all on the beach. I was sitting there on this beach two years ago, and uh, 
I was thinking about how everyone at the beach is doing whatever they want except for the lifeguards. They have a job to do. What's amazing about lifeguards, they are mentally and physically set apart by every single person on the beach. And as I was sitting there thinking about this, it dawned on me. And I wrote this down in my notes. It'll be on the screen. If you are a Christian in this world, you are like a lifeguard on the beach. In other words, everyone else may be there for pleasure, but you are there for a higher purpose. (laughs) I have never forgotten this in the last two years. Everyone else at the beach is there for pleasure, but the lifeguard is there for a higher purpose. And if you're a believer, everybody else may be here living for their pleasure, but you have been here for a higher purpose. I'm going to keep going with this. Did you know that lifeguards have to get approved and hired? In other words, they don't just go to the beach. They are sent to the beach. And, in fact, their happiness, Ben, is not the main goal because there's people's lives on the stake. At sake, I want to tell you, for all the believers in here, you are not just in the world. You have been sent to the world. And it's not just about your happiness in this world. Why? Because people's souls are on the line when you're out there. In fact, the world is not a vacation for believers. It's a battlefield. A lifeguard's home, think about this, they belong on the land. They're great swimmers, but they belong on the land. Their job is to go into the water to help others who are drowning, Kaylee. And what I love, Paul in Philippians 3.20, he says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. What's amazing is a believer's home is in heaven But they were often sent out into the world, a.k.a. into the waters, to help those who are drowning. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? A lifeguard must leave their home and go out into the waters to help others. And you know what? You and I are called to do the same, to help others. And I kept thinking about lifeguards. When the highest authority approves you of lifeguard, they cover you in red and in white, showing your authority. On that beach to warn people that the water may not be safe for them. And you know what? When you tell them to get out of the water, do they like that? Nope. When the Lord approves you as his follower, he covers you in red and white. He covers you in the red blood that Jesus Christ shed on the cross, and he covers you in the white of his holiness. And that is your authority in this world to warn others that the waters may not be safe. To warn others that sin is like a riptide. And as a believer, as a lifeguard, when you go into this world and tell others that sin is like a riptide, that they need to run, they might not want to hear that. But you've been given authority. A lifeguard slacks on his job, people lose their lives. And you know what? When believers slack on what they have been called to do, there are too many souls on the line. Too many souls on the line. So as a believer, as a lifeguard, the authority you've been called with, everybody here is living their life for pleasure. But are you living for that higher purpose? Are you living with that authority? See, when Jesus said he has given you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, that means you have authority. What's crazy is most believers have authority, but they still bow and worship to fear and to apathy. Here it is right here. The two things I see believers run to when they don't want to live in authority, they run to fear and they run to apathy. Oh, I'm just not capable. Oh, what will people say? Oh, how will I do it? Or they run to, you know, I just really don't feel like it. The lifeguard tower is very nice and comfortable. I can put my feet up. I really don't want to get out in the waters and make disciples. I really don't want to get out in the waters and share the gospel. I really don't want to get out in the world and walk in the authority that God has given me. I really don't want to. I would rather stay in the lifeguard tower. Tonight, God has given you authority. 
In fact, he has called you as believers with authority to go to people tonight who you don't know and have a conversation with them. Can you imagine? That's so unreal. But if there's anybody in this room who is sitting alone or doesn't have somebody to talk to, that should be an emergency inside this place. How dare we as believers come into this place to worship at the view and allow people to not have somebody to talk to? Would you like being alone here and worshiping alone with nobody talking to you? And I'm serious. I don't want to get on you, but here's the truth. Have you ever stopped to think what other people experience when they're here at the view and not just you and me? Because there's people in this room who are learning about Jesus and trying to decide whether they want to give their life to Jesus Christ or not. And their decision may depend on the kind of love you show them. The reason why we aren't sharing the gospel out in the world is because we're not sharing Jesus' love inside the church. For you, when this service ends, to go to somebody immediately and to pray with them tonight? Can you imagine to walk up to somebody, hey, what's your name? How long you been coming? That's fantastic. What are you studying? Hey, what's a way that I could pray for you tonight? That could change somebody's life drastically. But we don't walk in that authority. We don't walk with the keys of the kingdom of heaven because we're too busy chasing the culture, chasing the world. God has given you authority. What Jesus is saying here, Jesus is saying his church is unstoppable. The Satan will not stop the church. The world will not overcome it. The church will rule. And the gates of Hades was an expression of death. In fact, the power of death. And Jesus is saying his church will not die. And aren't you grateful that the church will not die? Amen. There are believers in China, in Africa, all over the world, being persecuted for their faith, being killed for their faith. You say, Daniel, this is serious. It's real life. There are people dying over the name of Jesus. And I get convicted because I'm here and I can't have a conversation with somebody at a gas station about Jesus Christ. That's not living out heaven's rule. That's living for the world. I don't want to play church. Don't trade away the keys of the kingdom of heaven for an hour a week of playing church. You got that choice. It's a bad trade. <laughs> Last night I went to the park I gave my life to Jesus at. The band's going to make their way back out here as we finish up tonight. Last night I went to the park. I gave my life to Jesus at. And I went out there. I can take you to the spot. If you ever want to go, let me know. I know you probably. I can take you to where I was. And just as John, who got baptized tonight, gave his life to Jesus at Salsa's kitchen because Salsa was willing to open up his home every week for a bunch of guys to come in and have a Bible study, that led to John coming to know Jesus Christ. I went out to that park five and a half years ago, broken over my sin. I went out there and I was so lonely. You ever been lonely before? I was so hurt by the church, by the world. I believed nobody cared about me. I really did believe in my core that there was nobody in this world besides my family and Dakota, because I didn't know Hannah, 
I believe there was nobody who really cared about me in this world. And I went out there and I can remember the smells, I can remember the songs, I can remember the, the air, it was cold, it was midnight, and I went out there that night and I got down on the ground face down. I want to be honest with you, Conscience, the reason why I got down on the ground is because I was so broken I couldn't stand. I'd been coming to Bellevue for a year, hadn't talked to anybody, as Skylar said, I came to church for a year alone, didn't talk to a single person here. And I sat in the back of that sanctuary every single Sunday and then left. And when I went out to that park, I was so broken, I could not stand before the Lord that I had to fall face down. I want to ask you, have you ever been that broken? Have you ever gone to the Lord and not been able to stand and all you know to do is to lay face down on the ground because you are so aware of your sin, you're so aware of this broken world, you're so aware of how good God is that you don't even want to face Him? That's how I felt. And I laid down on the ground and and I was so fed up and tired of the life that I was living, and I was tired of playing church. And I just wanted to experience the Lord. I was a college student at Memphis. Some of y'all know all this story. And I told the Lord that night, I said, God, I am a sinner. And I said, Lord, I want you to tell me the sins I need to repent of. <laughs> Have you ever asked God to do that? God, tell me the sins I need to name right now. He will. It won't take long. And on that ground, I said, God, tell me the sins I need to repent of. And all these things started popping in my mind. But it was amazing because when those sins popped in my mind, there wasn't this overwhelming shame and discouragement. I was embarrassed by my sin. But when God was bringing those sins to my mind, it's like he wasn't bringing those sins to my mind to beat me down or to hold it over my head. He was bringing those sins to my mind saying, hey, I pay for these. It was this peace. It was this overwhelming sense of gratitude that these sins that I'd had, all these laundry lists of things that I'd chased the world had been paid for by somebody. See, what I felt in my innermost being as a 21-year-old college student is something that many of you have never felt yet. I felt that because of my sin, I owed something, that I had to pay something. Because of this rebellious, sinful, pleasureful lifestyle I had been living, I, was owed, I had to pay something. And what I knew in my being was that I would have to die for these sins because I've broken God's law. And God brought these sins to my mind and it was this peace and I repented. I said, God, you paid for these. This is how much you love me, that you would send your son down to be tortured and beaten and mocked and spit on for me, that you would take every single sin on the cross for me and this overwhelming sense, not a feeling, but a sense, an impression. The gospel was becoming real to me for the first time in my heart. And as Peter did last week, Peter looked at Jesus and said, you are the Prince of Peace. You are the Redeemer of Israel. You are the Messiah. The day after Christmas, I realized in my heart who Jesus was. And he became real to me. I realized it's not a fantasy. <laughs> it's not a fairy tale. It's not a religion. <laughs> It's a real relationship with Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. And right there, I didn't just repent of my sins. I said, Jesus, save me. Save me. He said, yes, you paid for my sins, but I want you to save me. 
And I flipped through my Bible. I came to, to Romans 6, 23 that says, For the wage of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. I came to Romans 10, 9 that says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And I remember at that park thinking to myself, There's no way God would forgive a sinner like me. And then I stumbled onto Romans 10, 13. Do you know Romans 10, 13? It says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so you may be here tonight. And you may be sitting in that chair, and you may be thinking this thought. Does God really forgive me of these sins? Because these are awful. You may be so embarrassed and so shameful and so convicted over your sin that you think God really wouldn't forgive someone like you. Why would God want to talk to a sinner like you every day? Why would God, knowing all the things you've done, die for you when he could die for so many others? I want you to know Romans 10, 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You are not too far gone. I don't know what you're thinking as you sit in that chair, but I want to tell you, you are not too far gone. You, there is no sin that God will not forgive if you will repent of it. You can know Jesus Christ tonight. Your life can radically change tonight if you're willing to not join Bellevue, not join The View, not become religious, not put on a suit and tie. It's not about those things. Man, it was me getting saved at a park. I didn't get saved at a stage. I got saved at a park. It's you right here, right now, saying I'm done running, Lord. You brought me here tonight for a reason. You've been doing this work in my life for a reason. So I repent, I believe, I confess that you are Lord. It's you making that decision right there in your heart. Whether we ever find out about it or not, it's about you making that decision. Jesus changed my life five and a half years ago, and he will change your life forever.